and we're going to study Genesis 35, so you might want to open there and put your finger in there, but uh, while you do that, if you would turn over to Genesis 28, we're going to kind of begin there. So Genesis 28, um, pretty easy to find, just go 28 chapters from the, from the left, and you're there. In Genesis 28, remember that Jacob had this dream, and Pastor Michael has mentioned it several times. And in this dream, there were the angels ascending and descending up the ladder. And it was a place where Jacob first really met God. We don't really know how much he knew about God up to that time. <clears throat> we have very little information. But at that time, we know that God did an amazing thing. And if we look at Genesis 28, <clears throat> excuse me, 16 and 17, we see Jacob's declaration about what happened. So Genesis 28, 16, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, Bethel, the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And after Jacob made that Declaration, then he made a vow in Genesis 28, starting in verse 20. He said, If God be with me and will keep me on this journey, and keep me means take care of him, will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So this was a vow that, that Jacob made after he had this experience with God. And as we've gone on and studied the chapters from that point in time, we realize that Jacob's journey was not always a smooth one, was it? You know, his zeal for God after this experience had its ups and downs. It waned a little bit here and there. There were some positives that we saw that happened in his life, but there was a lot of negatives as well. And uh, you might say it was the good, the bad, and the ugly of Jacob's life that we've read about in these last few chapters. And really, I don't know anything that could be much uglier than what we saw in chapter 34 last week. You know, chapter 34, I don't know if you know this, but it's been got, called the godless chapter of the Bible. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, if you went back and reread the chapter, you'd see that there's nowhere in the chapter that God is even mentioned. There's nowhere in the chapter that God was consulted about anything that took place. And so it was a chapter basically where God had been left out. But now we move into chapter 35, and you're going to see that chapter 35 is a very different story. In fact, if you count the names of God that are used in this chapter, as well as the other references, you'll see that there are at least 21 references to God in this chapter. So what an amazing contrast that we see in this story compared to the previous events that we read about. And then we're also going to see that there's tremendous application in this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There's tremendous application in here for us as well. So um, if you're in chapter 35, we're going to begin in verse 1. Let's have another word of prayer before we start. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to get into chapter 35 of Genesis. And God, I pray that your words will be spoken, Lord, that you'll anoint by the power of the Holy Spirit and teach us what you would have us learn. Open our ears and our hearts. And we thank you ahead of time in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 35, verse 1. It says, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So we see here that God speaks to Jacob. Now the question always comes up, how did God speak to Jacob? And I've got a great answer for that. I have no clue. I don't know if he heard an audible voice. I don't know if it was just a very strong impression that was given to him. All we know is that somehow God spoke to Jacob and Jacob knew that God had spoken to him. 
Now, you might notice here that he reminds Jacob that they've met before. He says, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau? So he's reminding Jacob, hey, look, we've, we've talked before, buddy. We're going to talk again here. And in this first verse, God gives Jacob three very specific instructions. I want you to look closely with me. The first instruction is to go. And where is he to go? He's to go to the house of God. That's what Bethel means, house of God. So he says, Jacob, I want you to go to the house of God. And what he's telling Jacob is, I want you to go back to that place, like you said you were going to, where you first realized that I wanted to have a relationship with you, where I first spoke with you, where I began to become very personal to you. I want you to go there. And so that's the first instruction, to go. The second instruction you'll see is live there. He says, I want you to live there. Now, the, the NIV translates it settle, and the New King James and ESV use the word dwell. All three of those are great translations of this Hebrew word, yashab. It means to live there. It means to dwell. It means to settle in in the house of God. In other words, you know, Jacob, I don't want you to treat this as a temporary stop, but I want this to be your home. Now, we'll see later that he's not just talking about the physical place, but I want this to be your home, so go and live. Don't make this a temporary place. Make this your home. Then the third instruction that he gives here, is he says, make an altar, and making an altar at that time really just represents worship. So really what God is saying to Jacob is to go and to live and to worship me in the house of God. That's the clear instruction. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and notice what he says, and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's an important statement. So we look here, and, and when I read this, I went, finally, finally, Jacob's response to God is, okay, I'm going to obey you, God. I'm not going to connive my way into anything else. I'm not going to figure out how to do it my way and just do what I want to do. He just says, okay, God, you tell me to go. I'm going to get up and go. It reminds me of Abraham, his grandfather. Look what he says here now to his family in verse 2. He says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. You know, Jacob decides here that if he's truly going to return to the house of God, he's got to get rid of some things that have helped him stay away from the house of God. Now, this is interesting because it's obvious now that Jacob knew about these foreign gods that they had. Remember uh, when he left Laban, he really didn't know that. Uh, his wife had taken some, the family had taken some, and he really didn't know, but it was obvious at this point in time, he knew they had them, and, and part of the reason is because what they were, were, were clued in later to what they were. Some of them were the carved images that we see uh, all the time, but others were just the earrings they had and, and other uh, things that they carried on their person. And the thing is that, that um, you know, look, these things in themselves had no power, they call them gods, but think about this. If it's a god, how do you put away your god? How do you get rid of a god? If you can get rid of a god, he's not much of a god. But he says, put away these foreign things. Uh, and it, you know, the, the, these objects that they carried with them. And those objects had been a problem for him. You see, Jacob, as I said, must have known they had these things. And for a long time, he did nothing about it. Now, in essence, that was a slap in God's face. Obviously, it, even though the commandments had not uh, been given up to this point, this was a command that God had 
Did he know it or not? I can't say for sure what they knew about this, but he knew that God wanted him and him alone, and he, and he did not want him to have any other gods. Exodus 24 and 5 says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And remember that Jacob had made a vow to come and worship God. He knew these things were wrong. He knew they shouldn't have had them. And he didn't do anything about it. And it caused a lot of problems for him. Now the next thing he says, okay, we're going to put away these foreign gods. I'm making a statement here. We're going to do this before we return. Then he says, change your garments. Now that's interesting. So, you know, what's he saying? Let's just put on a clean pair of underwear before we take this trip. That would be good. Then we won't be so smelly or what? I don't know. Okay, you know, it's always a good idea to change your clothes before you go on a trip. But that's really not what Jacob was talking about here. You see, this signifies an a inside purification. This is something that happens inside. The outside is just a visual uh, of what's happening inside. What he's saying here is we need a change of heart. We need to remove uh, these garments that we have because they represent us being soiled and covered in our sin. That's what Jacob was, was saying here. If you go to Jude 22 uh, and 23, Jude says this, And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So that gives us a picture of how the Jewish people thought about this. Changing the garments represented taking off the the, the old man taking off these garments that have been soiled by sin, the outer part of us, the flesh, and then putting on the new man. And then in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, uh, Paul says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So it's this idea of we're going to put off the old man. We're going to put off the old garment soiled by sin, and we're going to put the new garments on, and it's a commitment then to being obedient to God and, and to keep the old garments off, to stay away from the sin which is polluting. Um, you know, there's another interesting verse in Revelation 3, 4, when Jesus was speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation of the things that were going on, he was commenting on things that were good and things that were not so good. And what he says to the people uh, in Sardis, he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Meaning there were people there who were dedicated to living a godly, holy life, not allowing the pollution of sin into their life. And so we can see that God is speaking clearly here and that, that Jacob is saying, look, these are things we got to get out of our life. No more foreign gods, no more idols here. And let's get rid of this sin that we have in our life and let's put on the new man and let's take this trip and arise and, and go. So finally, Jacob is being obedient and he's not trying to figure it out how to do it his own way. Well, you know, if you think about this, I think the application from this is fairly obvious you see it's a great example of what we need to do when we find ourselves wandering wandering away from God when we find ourselves having been maybe willfully disobedient to God when we've been maybe so lax in our obedience that it affects our family the way it did Jacob's family in chapter 34 that we read last week and we get some great examples of what we should do if we find ourselves in that particular place. Number one, we need to return to that place where we first met Jesus. And I, I think about this scripture in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Again, Jesus speaking to the churches. He said to the church of Ephesus that even though they had persevered, even though they were very solid in their beliefs, they didn't tolerate false teachers and false apostles in their church. He said, I have one thing against you. 
And he says, you have to repent from this, from where you have fallen. And what it was, he said, you've lost your first love. And even though they were steadfast in their teaching, they'd lost their first love, and Jesus rebuked them for it. He said, you need to turn. You need to repent from that. They needed to go back to their first love, just the way that Jacob needed to go back to Bethel, to the house of God. Now, we're speaking more, of course, and we'll get into this, but we're speaking more than just the place. But you know, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes going back to a place can bring back some memories and some things that are important to us. Have you ever gone back to visit your old childhood home? How many of you have done that? You know, maybe the home that you've grown up in. That's really hard for me because I moved 18 times before I graduated from high school. So it's hard to go back there. However, pretty much everywhere we go, we find one of them. My wife's had to take several of these journeys with me. Um, But we tend to, when we go back to a place, we begin to think of our memories. And you know, sometimes if you're wandering away from the Lord, you might just want to go back and visit that place where you first came to the Lord where you first were really ministered to, where you first realized that God loved you and wanted to have a place in your life. That's not a a bad thing to do at all. Maybe just to sit and think about that, that memory. But you don't always need to do it physically. You can go back there just in your mind. I've shared several times Um, The day I got saved, I was 13 years old, so it was 150 years ago, and and I remember it very distinctly, and I remember walking forward in the church service and saying, I wanted Jesus in my life, and the way they did it back then uh, was, you know, if you got saved in the morning, you got baptized at night. They didn't mess around, and and I can remember that experience um, just like it happened yesterday. And, and pleading uh, or pledging, excuse me, my, my life to the Lord and confessing before men in the waters of baptism. So sometimes it's a good thing to go back to the place where, you know, we, we remember the joy that we felt when we came to the Lord, where we remembered, we remembered that our sins were forgiven at that time and we were cleansed and we began this brand new relationship with the God who created us. But more importantly, For us, it's we need to return to our first love. We need to return to the person of Jesus. That's what we return to. The second thing we learn out of this is that we need to live there. We need to follow that same instruction. We need to dwell, to remain, to settle in our relationship with Christ. Now, those words are great Hebrew words, but Jesus uses a different word. It's translated um, in, in the New American Standard, abide. That word abide in Greek means to stay, it's great, it stay in place or relation to. Stay in place or relation to. And in our case, it, it's staying in relation to. Turn over to John chapter 15, if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 15 starting in verse 4. And I want you to read this with me because it's a few verses and I want you not to get lost here. So, John 15, 4 through 11. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that, your, that, you may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I didn't count them up, but there's an awful lot of abides in there, isn't there? Now think of that word. That means live, dwell, settle, 
Stay in relation. And Jesus does a wonderful job of explaining that relation and how without that relation, we can do nothing in the sense of this, the world of the Spirit and the realm of the Spirit. So live with Him. Settle there and never, never, never leave. So the third instruction that Jacob was given that applies to us today is worship Him. It's just simply to worship Him. What a great example for us. Now, in those days, part of the worship was making an altar. For us, we don't necessarily make altars like that, but that altar represented some sacrifice. It could be sacrifice of time, you know, in, in many different ways. It can be financial sacrifice, whatever it is. Those are all elements of worship. Worship is not just when we take that time to sing to the Lord. But that certainly is an important time, isn't it? What it really is talking about is our daily habit of spending time with Jesus, reading his word, hearing from him. We read his word to hear from him, not just to read it. And then we speak to him in prayer. And you know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my quiet time, I can't help but just start singing. I do it quietly. But, you know, sometimes that song comes into your mind when you're in that time with him in that quiet place. And, and so, you know, yes, we can go to the house of God. And I know oftentimes we think of the house of God as this building, but this building is a building. You know why it's the house of God? Do you know why? Because you're here. You're here. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is dwelling in you. And so when we come together, God is here. And he meets with us. But God is here. He's with you anytime and any place. Now, so if you don't have a special place, I have a special place in my house. My wife has a different special place in our house um, for our quiet time. And, and hopefully you can find a place like that. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. You can spend time with Jesus anytime and anywhere. So Jacob's commands to his family apply to us as well. And if you've realized that, that you're wandering from God, then, you know, it's a good thing to recommit and say, I want to do some acts to show God that I'm serious about this. This is what Jacob was doing. You know, he was just saying, I, I'm not just going to speak. I'm going to do something to show God that I really mean this, that I'm serious about this. As, as we say, actions speak louder than words, don't they? So, Maybe we need to put away some of our foreign gods. Now look, I know you don't wear these things on your fingers or your ears, but you may still have some idols in your life. And I know that you know this, that anything that you place in your life before God becomes an idol to you. And maybe as you're wandering away from God, you realize, I've put some things in front of God. I had a brother share with me today, he's just... God's just doing a great new work in his life. And, you know, he told me, he said, I, I had to put away some music that I listened to. Not necessarily bad music, but, you know, just old music that didn't really edify. And, and he told me he's really enjoying worship music like he never has in the past. You know, he decided to put something away as the Lord was, you know, reigniting the flame in his life. That's not a bad thing to do. Amen. Put away a foreign God. If it's hindering your walk with the Lord, put it away. Is it a hobby you have? Is it your work? Is, is it money? Or is it even your family? And as much as we love our families, we can place our family too high in our relationship. We can place our family before God. We don't want to do that. Then the last thing, purify yourselves. Change your garments. Whoa. Well, he kind of explained what that really means. And we need to recognize that sin of this world has a soiling effect on us, doesn't it? I mean, we leave here, you know, Pastor Michael likes to call it the holy huddle. We get out here, and we were at Logan's wedding, by the way, and the church where they did it had a great sign. We were thinking of stealing it, but then we thought, well, that wouldn't be too Christian-like. <laughs> but the sign, big sign over the door as you leave said, you're now entering the mission field. Amen. Oh, what an awesome thing to put on a sign to leave her because we come here to get filled up but we go out in the world, and we do get soiled. You know, that's just part of this world. It's going to have a soiling effect on us. So, you know, we may need to change our garments. Maybe we've allowed too much soiling in our life. Maybe we're, we need to put off that, that old man and put on the new man. Maybe we need to have a more of an inner cleansing in our life. Maybe we need to be willing to change an attitude. 
willing to change an attitude. We may have an attitude that's soiling our life. Have you many times have you said to your kids, you need to change your attitude, right? Maybe we need to change ours. We need to make sure we're putting God first and foremost in our life. And we want to make sure that we're going to be obedient to him rather than serve ourselves. That's what it means. Let's change those garments. Well, let's take a look and let's see how Jacob and the rest of the family did here. Verse 4 says, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now, this is interesting. There was no pushback. There was no arguing. They just did what Jacob told them to do. You know, and I think maybe he didn't want to say anything before because he didn't want to hassle it. He didn't want to, you know, get the confrontation. How many times do we not do the right thing because we don't want to confront something? But look at the disastrous results that had. And think about this. Think of how different Jacob and his whole family's life would have been had he been obedient originally and forced them to get rid of those gods earlier. Who knows how much difference that would have made. Verse 5, it says, As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Why was there great terror on them? Well, they obviously heard about what had happened in chapter 34. And you know, this is a great example of, of what God does. This was a horrible thing. There's no way to justify what happened in that there's no way to justify the original sin but there's no way to justify how they handled the sin um, or even how Jacob stood by passively it was all bad but as God often does he took something that was horribly evil and he turns it around for good you see he took that awful event that took place where all these people were killed by the sons of Jacob and he uses it to discourage any attacks on Jacob as Jacob is going to make his way to the house of God. That's an amazing God that we have. So verse 6, Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Uh, that's what it was called before it was renamed Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, what does this mean, El Bethel? It means God of the house of God. And why is this important? Because this is a recognition by Jacob of something we mentioned earlier. That even though God wanted him to go back to this place, what God really wanted was for Jacob to go back to God himself to the personal relationship he has with God. And even though we may want to go back to a place and refresh ourselves and remind us, the important thing is that God is calling us back to the relationship with him, a personal relationship with God himself. So Jacob says, God of the house of God, recognizing it's the personal God that he's really coming back to more than the place that he's coming back to. Verse 8, now Deborah Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. Verse 10, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel, governed by God. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Now I want you to look in here at how God responded to Jacob's obedience. First, he reminded Jacob that all the promises that he had made were still going to be fulfilled. And in verse 9, it says, God blessed him. 
You see, when we return to God, when we've been wandering like Jacob was, when we're waning in our faith, but we return to God, God blesses us. When we rededicate our lives to Him, when we decide to be obedient to Him, He blesses us. You know, I found in my life that the more closely I follow the Lord, the more obedient I am to Him and not to myself, the more He blesses my life. There is a direct correlation between obedience and blessing. Now, that's not always the way it's portrayed, which is if you're obedient to God, you will get a Mercedes-Benz this year. If you are obedient to God, that new house that you claimed up the street, it's yours. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Now, he might do that. He might financially bless you. And I've found many times the more obedient I am to him, following his word, the more I'm blessed. But part of that is just following the wisdom that he's given us in his word. But we're talking about spiritual blessings. And the more you're obedient to God, the more spiritual blessing you're going to see in your life. Well, then God reminded Jacob that his name, which remember the name represented who he was, had been changed, which he had already told him. He says, your name has changed. You're no longer heel catcher. You are now governed by God. Well, you know, there's other people in the Bible we know that got their name changed, right? You know, who do you think of first? I always think first of of Peter. Peter's name was Cephas before it was Peter, but at a certain point in time, when he declared who Jesus was, Jesus changed his name from Cephas to Peter. And then, of course, probably the most famous, we think of Saul, who becomes Paul after his encounter with God, right? His name got changed. There were reasons for this. And again, in Jacob's case, God didn't want him to think of himself as the conniving heel catcher that he'd always been. He wanted him to remember that he is now governed by God. Would you realize that God has given you a new name since you came to the Lord? Did you really ever think about that? What is that name? It's Christian. It's Christian. That's your new name. Now, you may have gotten another name too. I I have an uncle who calls himself Timothy too because of an experience that he had with God and that's what he believed God was giving him and who might argue with that. But I know this, I didn't get another name like that but I know I got the name Christian when I accepted Christ. That word Christian, by the way, means little Christ. That's that's what it means. And it was actually, I don't know if you know this, but it was a derogatory term that was used for the early believers. Other people called them little Christ in a derogatory way. Doesn't that sound like Today, you know, oh, you Christians, you little Christ, you know, because that's what you think you are. It's derogatory oftentimes today in, in a lot of circles. But you know what? Those early believers wore that name like a badge of honor. And we should as well. We've been given a new name. Christian. Verse 14. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. So remember, as he came back to the place here, he was told to worship, and this is a form of worship at the time. And the drink offering uh, was wine that was poured around the altar as a sacrifice. I mean, obviously, they needed the wine to drink. It was a sacrifice to pour it out, but it was an act of worship. And it's interesting because that pouring out of wine way back then foreshadows Jesus who is the drink offering for us. How is he the drink offering? By the pouring out the shedding of his blood which is represented in communion, right? The giving of his life for us. And you know, Paul actually thought of himself and his life as a drink offering. In Philippians 2, 17 and 18, Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You didn't know Paul was from, where are you from, Paul Hicks? With y'all. Arkansas. Arkansas. I was going to say Texas, but. I rejoice and share my joy with y'all. That's what he's saying. 
Then in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, he said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And I think about that. Do we have that same attitude? Do, do we desire to pour our life out serving Jesus by serving other people as a drink offering? Um, this was a sacrifice that was made. Now the oil uh, that was poured around the uh, altar as well. We know that in Scripture, oil represents what? The Holy Spirit. When we anoint people with oil, we tell them, look, this isn't magic. Um, this is just representing the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? I don't know if you ever really paid attention, close attention to all of the Good Samaritan. We know the main part, but did you know that the first things, anybody know what the first things he did when he came upon the man who was in need? Anybody know? You don't have to say it. Just raise your hand. And I'll call you out if you don't really. Luke 10, 34. When he first came to the man in need, it says he poured oil and wine on the wounds. Wow. Oil and wine on the wounds. Now, of course, we know that oil did have some medicinal qualities and the wine probably was to help the pain or I don't know if he poured wine on the wound. That seemed to sting more. Maybe it was to purify. I'm not sure. Um, but the medicinal purposes, it's really a symbolic thing. And you want to think about this. This was a picture of what was needed for us when we were wounded and dying and in need. The blood of Christ represented by the wine and communion was poured out for our salvation and our healing. And the Holy Spirit represented in Scripture by oil is the provision of the power we need to walk and to live the Christian life. And this was all represented in this little time with the Good Samaritan here. What an amazing thing. Going all the way back to the pouring of wine and oil on the altar. You see, when we determine to commit or recommit our Christ, we need the healing. We need that, that wine poured out. And we need the Holy Spirit to accomplish what we set out to do. You know, Jacob determined to do these things but we when we determine to be obedient when we come back to the Lord and we say okay I'm going to knock off this wandering and I'm going to follow you Lord we've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to do it we aren't going to do it on our own it's a great picture of what happens in our life well let's move on verse 15 see how we're doing on time here so Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel so house of God and then God of the house of God then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go um, to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. By the way, if you want to know, the distance was somewhere between a mile and five miles. It wasn't a great long distance like they'd traveled already. Uh, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Onai, which means son of sorrow. Now it's interesting because remember, Rachel had said to the Lord, give me, give me a son or I die. And it's interesting that in this son Benjamin or Ben-Onai, she called him, her death came about. But Jacob... His father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. You see, we see two things. There was the sorrow of uh, Rachel dying in childbirth. But there was the promise of Jacob, and so he called him Benjamin, actually, which is son of my right hand. And as you read further in Scripture, you're going to see how important Benjamin was uh, to Jacob. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set a pillar up over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day, to the time that this was written. Then Israel, notice he's called Israel here now, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. You know, so there was a renewed commitment on Jacob's part to God, but evidently, uh, and we'll see further, that his sons really hadn't committed. Yeah, they were obedient. 
they did what he, they were told there, but it's apparent that they're not following in this same commitment in their heart to God. And, you know, this is a warning to us as parents and grandparents, you know, that our, our offspring are going to follow our lead, and they, they are going to continue maybe to follow it even after we turn back to God. That's why it's so important for us not to wander off and to wander away because our kids watch us and they tend to do what we do. And apparently, you know, they were just had seen Jacob so many times being the conniver and the manipulator and getting things his own way that they've done the same thing here. It's a warning to us. And I've noticed, maybe you have too, um, that oftentimes when we come back to the Lord after wandering for a while and we see that our kids have gone the wrong way too, it seems to be harder to get them to follow when we make that U-turn. It really does. Not impossible. And if that's your situation tonight, I encourage you, keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Um, And keep leading and, and believe that God will turn them around. But as I read these last few verses, the question came up, why did Jacob leave Bethel again? I mean, he was told to live there, wasn't he? Dwell there. And once again, the the answer is, I don't know for sure. And I don't know for sure how long he stayed there before he left again. But I do believe that there there is a reason. I I can't be dogmatic about it. But I think the reason is, if you go back to his vow that he made, he basically said, I'm going to return to my father. And in essence, he still is, is staying in the land because he's not leaving going far away and it's in the land of Canaan that he's staying. So he may not be specifically at Bethel, but I, I believe that he had in mind that I got to make it back to my father. I, in Genesis 28, 21, you can see that that was the vow he made. And I'm sure that Jacob longed for his home. He longed for his family. He'd been away for a long, long time. And, and I know that many of you have been like that. Um, I, I think of, you know, my, my son graduated from high school. Twelve days later, he was off to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And the closest he's lived to me since that time, and he's now 39, uh, was up in Monterey, California for uh, 18 months. And, you know, I long to be close to, to my son and his family. I'm sure you have similar stories. You miss them. You want to be close. And I'm sure that Jacob must have felt that and wanted to be home and near his family. And think about it. He'd suffered the loss of Deborah. That may not seem like, well, yeah, but that was, she was just the nurse, you know. But you've got to understand, they were all part of a family. And so he'd lost Deborah, and then especially after the loss of his wife. And remember, Rachel was the wife whom he loved and whom he had served all those years for, 14 years for Rachel and He'd suffered that, that loss during the time. So I think he just wanted to head home. He wanted to complete that vow. He wanted to get back to his home and his family and his father. Verse 22, it says, Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, uh, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. Verse 24, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre uh, of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. So he finally makes it back. Now the days of Isaac at this time were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now there's some interesting things in here. He finally makes it back. Uh, We don't know exactly how much time, but then Isaac passes away. So he makes it back to dad before he passes away. But notice another interesting thing at the end of Uh, verse 29 it says his sons Esau and Jacob buried him so earlier they'd buried the hatchet and because of that now together they can bury their father isn't that a neat thing a reconciliation that took place between two brothers one of which hated the other for what he'd done to him God can do amazing things but I think what we see in these last verses and I'm not going to spend a lot of time 
uh, commenting on them, but I think what we see is that, you know, even when we make a recommitment, even when Jacob had returned to God, you know, his life didn't all of a sudden become this bed of roses. You know, life goes on. Births happen. Deaths happen. Sadness, joy. These are all parts of life that we're going to face no matter where we are with God. But certainly, we can face them better with Him. And as we're going to see in future chapters, there are still many things that are going to happen that aren't great things. And things that are results of the poor, um, the poor example of a father that he was at times in his life. The big difference here is that even though life goes on, and life will go on for us even when we come back to the Lord, that you have a different perspective. And Jacob had a different perspective on life now than he had ever had before. He saw things differently. He had a different way of responding to things that took place in his life rather than the way he used to. He wasn't going to connive. He wasn't going to try to work it out all his way. He certainly wasn't going to live perfect the rest of his life. He certainly was going to face troubles. He certainly was going to face sorrows. Um, well, that's interesting. Siri decided I was talking about her. <laughs> A good reason not to have Hey Siri on your iPad. Oop, there she goes again. <laughs> All right. So... When we think about all this, I think, again, there's a conclusion for us to make tonight. And I would say to anybody here that's, that's listening here in the building tonight or listening on the radio later or a podcast, I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we need a fresh start with Jesus tonight? Do you find yourself in a place where you know that you've been partially obedient or even worse, maybe not obedient all to the Lord, that you've been wandering that way, allowing the world to, to soil your garments and not doing anything about it. Do, do you find that your love is just waxing cold? Maybe it's not that you're blatantly doing things, but your love for the Lord is just waxing cold right now. It's not what it once was. Do you need to return to that first love tonight? Do you find yourself right now placing some of the things of the world above your relationship with Christ? And do you need to get rid of some of your idols tonight? You know, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 says this, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service, which is what we're supposed to be, entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Is your life entangled with the things of the world tonight? Things that you know you need to get untangled? And do you just maybe need to renew your worship of God? Again, maybe you're not blatantly being disobedient, but do you need to just spend more time in worship? Make it a priority of your life rather than an afterthought, oh gee, I forgot to spend any time with you today, God. I want to encourage you tonight with Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, as I was reading this, one of the things that I really love about this whole narrative is that from the very beginning of the chapter, even with all of Jacob's previous mistakes, and even as bad a decision as it was for him to go to Shechem rather than to go to Bethel, and the horrible things that happened there, did you notice that when we started off this chapter, it just says, God spoke to Jacob. And God told him what to do. There wasn't any chastisement. There wasn't any yelling and screaming as we often think God does to us. God just spoke to him and said, Jacob, go, live, worship. He gave him the command to return to him. 
And that's the God you and I serve. So if tonight you know that there's some returning that needs to take place, just know God is not going to get angry with you. He's not going to chastise you. He's just giving you the call to return to him tonight. There should be no fear or hesitation on your part. Maybe someone's here tonight that's never even had that first experience that Jacob had, and God's calling you as well. And he's calling you to come to him tonight and have that experience with him tonight. You can do that in prayer tonight. You can just come before the Lord Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sin, to come into your life, to come into your heart. And you can begin that relationship that Jacob began all the way back in Genesis Genesis 28. That's your opportunity here tonight. So I hope if that's you that you'll do that as we pray. So Heavenly Father, just thank you for this wonderful chapter. Thank you, Lord, that even when we've wandered off, when we make that decision, as you maybe are drawing us back to yourself, that we are going to put away the foreign gods and and change our garments, and we're going to return to you, um, God, that you'll in no wise cast us out, you'll in no wise chastise us or rebuke us, but you welcome us back with open arms in the same way that the prodigal father welcomed back the prodigal son and ran to meet him and threw a big fat party for him. So God, I just pray tonight if there's anyone here that needs to do that, I pray that in their heart right now as as we're just speaking to you that they would make that commitment. And if that's you tonight, don't hold back. Make that commitment to him right now. Speak to the Lord about the things that you need to throw off. Let him know that you're making a decision to return to him tonight in obedience and in love and in worship. And if tonight you're here and you've never made that commitment, I'm just going to ask that you would bow your heart before the Lord. And, you know, the words are not as important as the condition of your heart. And if you know that you need to turn to God tonight, if you know that Jesus died to save you from your sin, to bring you into relationship with him, to live eternally with him, and that he will give you the power of the Holy Spirit, then just speak that to him tonight and ask him to come into your life and into your heart. And he will. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you for these just wonderful people here. Um, God, what a blessing and privilege it is to be able to stand up at this pulpit and just share your word. And I pray, God, that you will use the words that were spoken tonight to minister to each one of us. And, Lord, we'll give you praise and glory for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.